This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good afternoon and welcome. We should learn later today the results of a ratification vote on a contract between the Ontario Medical Association and the province. It's a contentious deal and it would increase Ontario's $11.5 billion physician services budget by 2.5% a year to $12.9 billion by 2020. Those are big, big numbers. It allows doctors to co-manage the system with the Ministry of Health. Opponents of the deal say it amounts to only a 0.5% increase when you account for 2% inflation. Here's what I say. Whether the deal is ratified or not, one thing has become clear. There is deep division among Ontario's doctors, and many will be unhappy with the outcome, whatever it is. Will that affect your health care in the coming years? On the line, I have Dr. Nadja Alam, co-leader of a group that opposes the deal, Concerned Ontario Doctors. Hi, Dr. Alam. Hi, Libby. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Please call me Nadia. Okay, Nadia. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, the bottom line, uh, Nadia, uh, is this going to affect our health care, this uh, contentious division over this deal? Not at all. I think what we are going to see is that doctors are becoming more engaged. They're becoming more vocal about how health care should be delivered, and they're becoming much more vocal about advocating for their patients. That's what I heard reiterated. That was a theme yesterday over and over from people in the yes camp as well as the no camp. So in that, for an individual patient, the care they receive from their doctor will be the same regardless of what the vote is. What will affect patients is if this contract goes through or doesn't go through, the government's reaction to how healthcare should be funded may affect them over the coming few years. That's what worries a lot of doctors. Okay, how do you think uh, that the provisions of the deal will affect us or will cut our health care? So my, my own personal worry and the worry shared by thousands of doctors across Ontario is that this deal doesn't offer enough funding. It actually puts a hard cap um, that provides stability and predictability for the government. However, for the frontline doctor... What do I say to my patient who needs care if I've reached that 2.5% hard cap? Do I tell them, I'm sorry, we've reached the end of our budget, we've reached the limit of our budget. I'm not supposed to order that MRI. I'm not supposed to refer you for that uh, dermatology opinion. I'm not supposed to, I'm supposed to stop things. Is at some, that's the problem that a lot of doctors have with this idea of hard cap. So, yes. so can you just tell us again how these hard caps work? So in the past, the government, uh, I think it was in the 1990s, the government set hard caps on individual physicians. So what would happen is once those doctors reached that hard cap, they would stop working because to go over would mean that the doctors would have to pay the government back the money. 
but right? is that it is it just a minute? Is it all the hard cap, right? So if you mm-hmm. reach your limit, do you have to pay back all the money, or just like a they start clawing back? You have to pay back all the money. So if I this contract basically enshrines the idea of a hard cap and having to pay it back. So if I if this contract goes through, if doctors reach that hard cap. And again, this is individually, so you will have your hard cap and my doctor will have his hard cap. No, that was in the 1990s. Now the government's put a hard cap on the total budget. So every few months, physicians find out whether how they're tracking along in terms of staying within the budget that the government has set. Mm -hmm. So if we find out we're going over their budget. What do we do then? That is a very difficult conversation to have with the patient. I don't want to turn to a patient and say, I believe this test procedure or investigation is necessary, but I'm not sure the government is willing to fund it. That's a very hard thing for me to say to a patient who's sitting in front of me, who might be in pain, who might be suffering, who might, who medically needs a particular test. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought there was some kind of fund uh, that was there in case uh, the budget, you know, for, for exceeding the budget. Is that not correct? The government's given a bit of a cushion. Um, they have said that if you calculate everything through, um, they feel that their one-time payments will be enough to accept a physician growth, uh, a growth in physician services of up to 3.1%. However, those one-time cushions are offset by another $200 million in permanent cuts to physician services. So at the end of the day, the number that really matters is that 2.5%, because that's the one that's going to affect the kind of care frontline doctors can provide for their patients and the amount of care they can provide for their patients. Now, I've never had a doctor say to me, we've reached the cap, we can't give you this particular service. What, what I have heard from some doctors is that, um, s- say, with CT scans, there's, there's a problem with CT scans, they've been cut back, <laughs> so there seems to be an increase in paperwork. Um, is, is, is that going to be the result? That's one of the results of what happens after years of not funding the system properly. In the past, the government set up, in 2005, the government set up what they called a wait time strategy, where they put in extra funding so that we could cut down on the wait list. They've begun taking those, that funding back since, they've been taking it back since about 2012. They've been cutting back on that funding. So what we've seen inevitably is that wait times have begun to grow. And what that means for the doctor who's trying to get a patient a test, they have to go on the phone. They have to fill out forms saying, this is why I think this patient's urgent and that's, this is why I think they should be bumped up in the line, right? Bumped up in the queue. Does yep. that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I know for a fact that happens. But the, the other thing that strikes me, and again, this is um, a, an example of, of a CT scan. Uh, um, I was on a patient committee where the issue of CT scans, and this is, this is in uh, uh, it, slots for CT scans was a big issue. Uh, and this is uh, CT scans for cancer patients. Uh, and then on the other hand, I have seen uh, requests for CT scans for, for things that I would consider trivial, like to confirm sinusitis. So 
Isn't there a problem just that that perhaps some of the tests or some of the services uh, are being squandered while others are being rationed that are more serious? I know that doctors have been working to try and, and make a more, take a more sensible approach, a more evidence-based approach to ordering tests and investigations. Um, as our tests have improved, as our ability to take care of more illnesses has improved, patient expectation has also grown to continue using tests to help improve various conditions. So not just the cancer cases, but also other cases that may not be life-threatening, but can be life-affecting. Um, I know that a lot of doctors do struggle, and it's, it's, a, it's an education process, teaching patients how to use the system uh, properly so that we don't, like you said, squander our limited resources. Well, However, not just teaching patients, teaching doctors. Yes, and that's where the Choosing Wisely campaign comes in. So this is a campaign that patients have been involved with and that physicians have been involved with and that nurses have been involved with that have been looking at some of the most common tests and uh, common investigations and common treatments that have been offered for illnesses that aren't always as evidence-based as you'd think. So say back pain, right? If a patient comes to me with back pain, do I order that X-ray or MRI right away? As it turns out, research shows that the vast majority of people with back pain settle down regardless of what you do within six weeks. So giving them a bit of tincture of time is better than jumping to order that test. And so there's this education process going on to make sure that we start following those rules, following rules that provide better care for patients without wasting the limited resources that we have. But when, say, so when that patient comes to you with back pain, do they insist on getting some kind of test? Some do. Some do. And, and we'll go back and forth and we'll talk about it. And I'll give them all of the reasons why my advice is not to or, jump, jump to ordering tests without, uh, in the absence of red flags. If it's just simple back pain where they've just thrown out their back, we talk about it. And most patients I've found they accept it. Once they understand where I'm coming from, they don't push to be investigated. Because again, I think a lot of patients realize these tests, if they're not going to make a difference, there's no point wasting time getting a test, right? Because then they have to take time out from work. They have to find babysitting. They have to go down and get the test done. If it's not actually going to help them, why go through all that effort, that extra effort, especially when it's unnecessary? Nadia, here's the question though. Um, we already spend a very large proportion of our taxpayers' budget on health care. Uh, we have an aging population. The needs are just growing. So uh, if this agreement isn't the right way to keep costs in check, then how do we do it? What are That's we to do? That's a really good question. And certainly that came up yesterday during the meeting where a lot of doctors were saying that fixing the physician's portion of the budget may not be enough to fix the system as a whole. Yes, doctors have a responsibility to keep their budget within check, to keep it, uh, to use services wisely and carefully. Um, But what about the larger healthcare budget? How do we work on that? How do we work on improving that? We know that there's data that shows that if you look at healthcare, the healthcare budget as a pie, a smaller and smaller slice 
goes to frontline care with every passing year. So there's since 1975, 40%, uh, there's 40% less of the healthcare budget going towards um, hospitals. There's 20% less going towards doctors. So where's it going to the, to the layers of bureaucracy? Yes. In fact, that's exactly what's happening. And the frustrating part is there's data that goes along with that that shows, research shows that as you cut back on that frontline care, patients get sicker. They die sooner. So investing in bureaucracy isn't helping patients. Mm-hmm. What about and that's uh, a conversation that the government needs to have, and that's a, a goal that the government needs to own and head up. Uh, right. Um, they added a whole layer, but um, I I keep hearing about reforms to these LINs, which are the newest layer of the healthcare system. Uh, what are, what's happening with that? Um, I know that doctors have been advocating against it, um, mainly because the Auditor General herself. Uh, investigated the LINs just last year in the fall, and she released a report that condemned the LINs for um, being a waste of money. She found them inefficient and ineffective. They had consistently, in the last 10 years, failed most performance measures that the government had set in place. And it didn't make sense why, if these LINs were operating so poorly, why we continue to pay for them why they weren't improving, why, weren't, why wasn't the problem being fixed, basically. Okay. I'm, I'm disappointed to say that with the Patients First Act, the government seems to want to invest even more money into the LINs by creating more of them. It's almost like giving a raise to a poorly uh, performing employee. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. I think for this to improve, patients have to speak up. Okay. And say, we want our money going towards this and this and not bureaucracy. Okay, we have to take a quick break. Uh, Nadia, please hold on. There's a a lot more to discuss about this, including what might be a little bit of a generation gap between the doctors and their view of this agreement. I'm going to give out the numbers because I'm sure people have questions about their health care and how it will be affected by all of this. The number is 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'm on the line with Dr. Nadia Alam. We're talking about the new physician services agreements and how it is going to affect your health care. We will be back after this. Welcome back. The number is to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'm on the phone with Dr. Nadia Alam, who is a member, the co-founder, actually, of Concerned Physicians. Uh, They oppose the new physician services agreement, uh, which Ontario doctors just voted on yesterday. We're going to find the results today, but whatever the result, there will be many doctors who aren't happy with this. And Nadia, um, according to the reports, uh, younger doctors seem to be more in favor of this uh, compared to their older colleagues. We actually, <clears throat> sorry, Libby, um, we actually don't know uh, what the breakdown is going to be. I know that there were some younger doctors yesterday who spoke in favor and spoke very, very movingly in favor of the contract. And for all the right reasons, there are definitely strengths to the contract. Um, however, there was an equal number of young voters, who, young physicians, uh, medical students and residents, who spoke against the contract. 
I have a feeling that the that the split that we're seeing among the the older docs, the ones who've been working for a few years or up to a few decades even, um, is mirrored in the split between uh, the medical students and the residents. This this contract has been very polarizing between the yes and the no camp, for sure. Mm-hmm. So you don't think it's a matter of uh, younger doctors being more idealistic, being willing to give up more? I don't know. I, I think that younger doctors may be a bit more idealistic, but I think that idealism seems to carry through t- through the age. I think doctors tend to be altruistic on the whole. A lot of us believe in the greater good. A lot of us believe in sacrificing ourselves for the greater good. We know this because the vast majority of doctors in Ontario work crazy hours to provide the kinds of services their patients need. And they do it without really thinking about it. They don't really think of it as a sacrifice. They do it because medicine's a calling, right? Well, it's one of the most amazing things that you can do as, as a physician. Let me ask you this, because we, we don't have very much time left here. Uh, let's say the agreement is voted down. What happens then? Are you back to square one and working under the terms of the agreement that has expired? My hope is, and this may be where my idealism kind of comes through, my hope is that the government honors their word. They have been speaking for the past week or two, Um, in the media saying that they want to return to a trusting, collaborative relationship with physicians. So my hope is they're going to put their money where their mouth is. And if this deal is rejected, they'll go back to the table with the OMA to produce a contract that builds on the strengths of this one and addresses the weaknesses in this one. Because a, a contract like that is what we're all really looking for. We're not expecting miracles here. We don't expect raises for the individual doctors. We're all very well aware that Ontario is in a very difficult economic state. No doctor that I know is looking for a raise. Um, What we do want, though, is adequate funding for for physician services and for the healthcare system as a whole. It's getting very frustrating watching our colleagues close their clinics, watching amazing, well-trained specialists leave Ontario and realizing that it's getting harder and harder to find the resources and the care that your patients need. Like as a family doctor, I see this every day now in my clinic where I'm trying to refer my patient to someone who no longer works in Ontario and now they're stuck in, because of their fewer docs and fewer specialists, their patients are stuck in longer and longer lines just waiting for the care that they need. Okay, Dr. Nadia Alam, I guess uh, we won't have to wait very long until we find out what happens. And let's hope uh, that whatever it is, it's good news for patients of Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Libby, for having me. This was a great discussion, and I totally agree with you. I want what's best for my patients at the end of the day. Okay, excellent. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.